This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each show, we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move into a deep dive on a question or a category that was in one of those episodes. And then we finish with a quiz. So this week, we have returned to our regular season competition after the just just roller coaster of emotions that was the Tournament of Champions. Uh, it was so great, though. Oh, but Jeopardy made a big announcement since we were on last. Oh, how did how was that not the first thing I said? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> uh which is we've got the greatest of all time tournament coming or is it a tournament what are they calling it they've got this greatest of all time event coming up i think they're calling it a tournament because there are multiple rounds even though it's the same yeah. people yeah so they're bringing back uh james holtzauer and ken jennings and brad rudder um which it is hilarious to see all the um the people who are not like sort of in the jeopardy world be like James Holtzauer, Ken Jennings, and some other guy. I don't know. Right. Um, <laughs> like, who's, who's that guy? <laughs> the guy who, is, who has never lost Jeopardy to a human, right? Correct. Still? Yes, Correct, I, think, yeah. I think he still holds that record. He does. Um, although, we'll see. I don't know. Um, I'm, pre- I'm excited about it. I think it will be very entertaining. Yeah. Um, it seems like they are going to continue running regular Jeopardy when that runs, so that if you want to, you will be able to watch an hour and a half of Jeopardy a night, which I'm up for it. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's going to be a good couple of weeks. I'm not surprised uh, that it's happening. I mean, there's been a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of people pushing for it in, in the fan base, uh, and... I think I think given uh, Alex's uh, prognosis, I mean, it makes sense to have something like this uh, almost to kind of mark the end of an era sort of thing in yeah. my in my mind. So, yeah. And the fans have been screaming for it. So, yeah. you know, here we go. It's coming. I think they're recording in like a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's they're supposed to in December. I will say I do take a bit of issue with the prize pool. Um not because I have anything against any of the contestants. Like I have met Brad and I spent some time competing and, and not competing with James uh, and nothing, but for, for me personally, nothing but good interactions with them. Um, but they have all won multiple millions of dollars on this show. I don't see why the prize pool needs to be like a million dollars for the winner. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you on that. Um, But it's not yeah, up to me. I guess it, yeah, I guess it, it makes it exciting for the viewers, but still, I, I don't know. I, uh, I would love to see them give a substantial portion to charity, whoever, whoever wins the thing. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm obviously can't speak for them, but I imagine, I imagine they will. I know James has already, like, <laughs> James has already given a large portion of what he, what he won, uh, to yeah. various charities. He's very outspoken about that, so... Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember him, him saying a bit about that. Um, I don't remember the specific charities, but I think that's uh, important. Yeah, I think he spreads it around. Um, that's that's wonderful, but good for him. Yeah. <laughs> a genuine good for him. Yeah, yeah, not, um, not like an Alex good yeah. for you. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, it should be good. It's coming up pretty soon. That turnaround mm-hmm. after the announcement is is fairly quick for for Jeopardy. So yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. All right, should we go to Monday? Yeah, let's let's jump into it. All right. Uh, so we've got Kevin Jones, a retired IT project manager from Galloway, Ohio. Which we are not related. I know we have the same last name. It happens a lot. And the same first initial. And the same first. That's that's fair. Yeah, our names are almost the same, actually. Yeah. Uh, we have Beverly Randez, a university business administrator from San Diego, California. And we have Andrew Thompson, a journalist from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, uh, whose two-day cash winnings totaled $30,800. There was some, some chatter. There was a little, a little controversy about one of the, uh, the clues in single jeopardy for this game. Um, we had the biopics category. And at the $200 clue, pick number two, uh, the clue was, in a beautiful day in the neighborhood, beloved children's TV show host Mr. Rogers is played by this beloved actor. And then they showed video of Tom Hanks in a in a red cardigan. Um, uh, of course, it's Tom Hanks. And I, I'm sure the contestants knew that. Um, what happened is that the lights didn't come on to tell them that they could use their signaling devices. Mm-hmm. And so they were waiting for the point in the film clip where they could ring in and then their time timed out without those lights ever turning on. Yeah, so they just were not able to ring in. It's not that they didn't know it or uh, were unsure or, what, or whatever. Yeah, it was it was a technical, technical error on the production side. Yeah, um, and what I've heard is that uh, the judges considered what to do do in terms of replacing the clue but they decided that since no contestant had specifically been disadvantaged um you know since just none of them had had the opportunity they would leave it in and um i don't quite know how everything works with uh when when jeopardy is like plugging a film or a tv show or a product you know but uh i think it's it's not as easy as just switching the clue out especially if it's you know a movie that's coming out in the week that the show is airing. Right. They probably have some sort of contractual deal with the studio to say like, this will be on our show and you will pay us X amount of dollars to make sure that it is there. Yeah. Um, I feel like as contestants, we never really heard about that. And it's a whole side of Jeopardy that I, that I'm very curious about. Yeah. Yeah. The dark underbelly of Jeopardy. (laughs) Yeah. We had, uh, the Daily Double, um, I got a little stuck. The category is how high. The clue was this stopping point for Everest's southern face, 17,600 feet. I spent the time that Kevin was coming up with the answer thinking, what in the world is the name for the Everest base camp? <laughs> and then Kevin said, what is base camp? Uh, and was ruled correct. Well, there, which, there you, you know, go. So there, there you go. Um, I, I'm glad I wasn't up there because I think I might have 
You know, I think I would have gotten stuck in my head trying to come up with something other than the phrase right on the tip of my tongue. Um, so good for him for knowing that that was the thing to say. Yeah, um, I, I guess. I don't know that I would have gotten that either because it seems like there should be a name for it. Yeah. Um, looking at J Archive, it has parentheses, the Kumbu Glacier. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So I think there is, you know, there is also a, another proper proper noun mm-hmm. for it. Um, but base camp was sufficient. Yeah, that was uh, that was near the middle of the round. Kevin kept pace with Andrew throughout that first round. Beverly did not. She, she just seemed a little behind. <laughs> yeah. And that happens. I mean, it's when there are three contestants, it's 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 uncommon that all three are kind of evenly matched you know Mm -hmm. that's when you get those really good games where you get to final jeopardy and all of them are pretty close to each other but those don't happen Mm -hmm. terribly often yeah and that could just be buzzer timing you know everyone passes the same test to get there um certainly there are and it's hard to know you know whether she was trying to get in on the buzzer and just couldn't or you know sometimes people sort of get overwhelmed being up there with the lights and you know uh things that you would know just cold sitting on your couch um you know it's hard to it's hard to pull when you're you know in a high pressure environment yeah yeah exactly anyway the jeopardy round goes goes you know fine Mm -hmm. uh and by the end of it uh kevin has a lead he's at seven thousand andrew is at six thousand and beverly's in at 2200 not a not a bad score for yeah not bad but but behind Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we go to Double Jeopardy. And I noticed this with multiple episodes this week. They they really went heavy on the like on the clues that have video components. Like the clue mm. the clues that take a really long time. So there's the comedians yeah. on Audible category that, you know, yes. all of them have clips. Which make it harder to get through all the questions in the round. It's true. The the rumor is, although I'm not sure I've heard this from any of the production staff, um, that when they have a category like that, they are not going to call, they are not going to end the round um, until all of those clues have been used. And so the, uh, the sort of ideal clue selection strategy is to get through all of them fast in, if they're in single jeopardy, but to leave them for last if they're in double jeopardy, because double jeopardy is where the money is. And so uh, you don't want it to end early, you mm-hmm. want, but ending single jeopardy early is, uh, is fine. And those, those clues do take up a lot of time. And so if you have a lot of them, you're likely to end up not revealing all the clues in right. your game. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. I, I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I liked the comedians on Audible category um, because for whatever reason, I have sort of a rotating uh, catalog of audiobooks I've listened to a lot of times that I that I uh, put on when I'm falling asleep. And a, a lot of them are um, memoirs by female comedians. So mm-hmm. this was great for me. <laughs> My yeah, my wife actually listened to Yes Please, uh, and I mm-hmm. I kind of listened to it with her um, when I was home at the same time, with Amy Poehler reading it for herself, which was mm-hmm. pretty awesome. We love Amy Poehler. Yes, me too. And uh, Mindy Kaling is like in my in my audiobook re-listen rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, thought that was a that was an obvious one at the at the at the four hundred dollar level at you know as as the four hundred dollar clue should be sure. right like you've. You know, first you have the title of the book, and then the 
uh, is everyone hanging out without me? And then the clip comes on where she says, I don't remember a time when I wasn't chubby. Like being Indian, being chubby feels like it is just part of my permanent deal, right? And you've just got the whole thing there, right? Yeah. Like you've got the title of her book. You've got that she, you know, is a chubby Indian comedian. And like and like part of my permanent deal is also like so Mindy Kaling's voice mm-hmm. um, that I feel like you could get it from like one or two of those things, you know? Right. But I liked seeing her in there. Yeah. Daily Double number two uh, came in the category A Man of the Cloth at the $1,200 level. Uh, it The clue is... In 1878, this retailing pioneer suggested the price of a nickel for items that weren't selling quickly. Uh, And Kevin was not able to pull it, um, but the correct Mm -hmm. response is F.W. Woolworth, which Mm -hmm. uh, one of these facts... So I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast yet. I say that a lot because I don't remember what I talk Mm -hmm. about on the podcast or not. Uh, one like the reason I love Jeopardy so much is because I was raised on it. My mom watches like has watched it every day basically her whole life, um, and my mom loves like just facts and that kind of thing. So one of the things that I know for no other reason than my mom insisted on me knowing it is that Woolworths is the five and dime. Mm-hmm. You know, growing up in the '90s and 2000s, five and dimes don't exist. They're not a thing anymore. Uh, Woolworths. I guess was around but it was just a store but she made sure i knew that woolworths was a five and dime that's it i have no connection of that to anything else i uh i was familiar with that fact as well and also um the category a man of the cloth um turned out to be uh men whose names evoked like fabric or clothing of some type so woolworth fits because wool um, right, Boss Tweed. Yeah. Mark Felt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brad Paisley. And then Daily Double number three came at clue number 24. Andrew got it, wagered 3,000. Uh, it was in the Home is Where the Art Is category at the $1,600 level. Um, the clue was a full length portrait of George Washington from this 18th century artist is often admired by tourists at the White House. And he couldn't pull it either. Uh, uh, so it was another miss on, on the Daily Double. He guessed who is Delacroix. Correct response was Gilbert Stewart. Um, yeah, for American artists. Yeah. Gilbert Stewart. He's one of those. I feel like that. I, I had since forgotten it, but I feel like that was one of the names that I memorized as like important for for jeopardy um right if you're thinking if you're thinking portraits he should be one of the people you're thinking of Mm -hmm. and that was actually pretty late in the round that was clue number 24 so Mm -hmm. andrew dropped down there and kevin had been steadily uh building his lead uh so going into final jeopardy kevin is at twenty thousand six hundred, and andrew is at six thousand six hundred. so kevin's got it locked up pretty significantly and beverly Mm -hmm. is at four thousand six hundred so uh not a chance so they get the final jeopardy category u.s cities uh clues celebrating electricity and technology and exposition in this u.s city of light in 1901 was overshadowed by another major event beverly guesses san francisco Andrew has the correct response with Buffalo. Um, Kevin has guessed what is New York City. So he loses some, but it doesn't matter because he he had it locked up. And the event that the clue was alluding to was the shooting of President McKinley. 
Yep, which I, uh, that fact has stuck with me particularly because at that expo he was shot, the location was something like the the Shrine of Music stage or something like that, and that terminology always, always like, stuck in my brain of, like, oh, that's so cool. Oh, it's the Temple of Music at the Pan American Expo. All right. All right. So that brings us to Tuesday. Uh, we have Sathik Nambarar, a medical student from Lebanon, New Hampshire. Shannon Jameson, a technical product owner from Enrico, Virginia. And Kevin Jones, returning a retired IT project manager from Galloway, Ohio. All right. So, um, so hell froze over, and I got two basketball questions correct. <laughs> Let's be fair. They're, they're basketball <laughs> movie I got, questions. I got a question about Space Jam correct. I'm not sure that counts. But, uh, but yeah. <laughs> the, I guess maybe the embarrassing thing is that I didn't get all of the basketball movie questions correct. I don't know. Um, yeah, but I, uh, I knew Space Jam and I knew Love and Basketball. They, the contestants knew all of them, I think, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah they did. You didn't know white men can't jump? <laughs> I, I know, that's embarrassing. Oh, that's, I mean, whatever. Yeah, no, I, I should have, I should have known that one. That's really funny, but, but I'm, I'm glad but you... I have not seen it. I'm glad you got Space Jam and can remain, uh, identifying yourself as a child of the 90s. Oh, Yes. Uh, absolutely. I, I don't know how many times I've watched Space Jam, but I think it's more than three. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm not sure exactly the year it came out. I want to say like 96 or something like that. Yeah. Um, so what year is it now? 2019. Uh, at least once every summer for 23 years. Really? Uh, plus who knows how many extra times when it first came out. So there we go. Wait, you you annually watch Space Jam? Space Jam and Good Burger. Okay. How how did that tradition come about? I, for you? I don't know. <laughs> Honestly. Okay. Um, and I, I, I shouldn't I shouldn't I should be honest. Uh, it's been a few years. I haven't done it the last few summers. Really since the kids were uh, born, which is a shame. I need to introduce them. Um, yeah. But uh, no, I just like uh, summer vacation our you know our cousins would we, we'd spend time with our cousins and just for some reason we watch space jam and good burger at some point <laughs> mm-hmm. nice classics you know yeah no that's great anyway uh so there, there was other stuff in this uh jeopardy round <laughs> there was uh we had this whole author's fictional places category which i loved um the contestants struggled a little bit with some of it. I, you know, you have to you have to know your uh, your children's and young adult literature to really uh, to to really shine in this one. Um, Shannon ended up getting uh, the clue. Uh, the Hundred Acre Wood, um, and of course you're supposed to name the author. Um, so Sotvik rang in and then couldn't pull it. And then Shannon rang, rang in and said, who is Milne? Um, uh, it's pronounced Mil, but you, you wouldn't know that if you'd, you know, if you'd learned it by reading it. Yeah, if so, you'd never um, heard it said. Yeah, that's one, of those, that's one of those tricky Jeopardy things where you learn a gajillion things by reading them, and then you're supposed to say them out loud on television, um, which is sort of terrifying. And I remember um, prepping and uh, noticing all of the things that I knew but didn't know how to pronounce mm-hmm. um, and like frantically Googling the pronunciations of various things that would pop into my head as like, oh, this is a word that I can only write. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Daily Double came in the uh, historical hodgepodge category. I feel like there's been a lot of hodgepodge lately, but maybe I'm just uh, having recent. <laughs> You're just using up old clues. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think so. Well, I mean, as uh, the Jeopardy fan has pointed out, there have been a significant number of clues left on the board this season. So maybe they That's are. True. Maybe they are recycling. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it was at the $1,000 level, and the clue says a, a 1945 telegram from Churchill to Truman mentioned soviet power and quote the descent of this between us and everything to the eastward shannon guessed what is communism but this is the uh this is the missive where we get the term iron curtain i feel like you have to be a little bombastic to use the phrase iron curtain in a telegram which you're like you're supposed to be super concise in a telegram, right? Like, isn't that sort of the yeah, you know yeah. part of the whole medium? Right. Um, but, <laughs> but okay, Churchill. I mean, that was him. Yeah, for sure. A couple clues before that, we had uh, we in the same category, uh, historical hodgepodge. We had lasting forty minutes, an eighteen ninety six battle between Britain and this island, now part of Tanzania, is considered to be the shortest war. I got it right away because I, a couple days before this episode aired, met an exchange student from Zanzibar. Um, mm. the, the high school here has a pretty active um, like foreign exchange program, um, and they, uh, they had done like a, like a meet and greet at the public library with all the students, and so um, we went and, and visited with a bunch of students and talked with the high school junior, I think, from Zanzibar, um, and so it came right to me. So that was fun. Nice. So Shannon missed that. She lost a thousand. The rest of the round goes kind of straightforward. She still manages to maintain a lead at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, just a little mm-hmm. bit. She's at four thousand. Kevin's at thirty-six hundred, and Sethvik mm-hmm. is at uh, twenty-four hundred, which goes into the double Jeopardy round. Mm-hmm. It's been nice seeing the contestants start at the top of the board. I do find that easier to watch as a viewer. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah. So they started at Islands in the Sea at the 400. And missed missed the Caribbean, I think, trying to like overthink it a little bit. They headed for Curacao and Grand Cayman right. as, uh, as responses to uh, Barbados and Bonaire, this big sea. Mm-hmm. So headed away from that for a while. I love the 11-letter words category, really just mm-hmm. like when it, uh, vocabulary categories are fun for me. Yeah. I, and probably anyone who's been on Jeopardy or enjoys yeah. trivia. Like, we like showing off our vocabulary. 11 is tricky to count in the amount of time that you have. You just sort of have to go with it and hope, unless they sort of group easily, you have to go with it and hope that it comes in at 11. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I actually counted out any of them. Um, but we did find Daily Double number two in that. Uh, category at the $1,600 level. Uh, it is someone who dislikes people in general or the title subject of a 1666 play by Moliere. And mm-hmm. the correct response is misanthrope, which I remember uh, because that is the name of one of the teachers in the Captain Underpants books. Oh, yes, misanthrope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes, uh, we we have a lot of Captain Underpants around my house right now. Nice. Um, yeah, Abel is really into Captain Underpants. Good. They're classics. Yeah. Oh, they're so good. 
And uh, Suffolk, just before that, Suffolk had gotten a little, like, a little bit lucky. He's a medical student. Um, and then at the $2,000 level in misleading names came the clue. The funny bone isn't funny and it's not a bone. That weird sensation you feel is this nerve pressing against the end of the humerus. Oh. It's the ulnar nerve. So if you would expect anyone to know it, it would be the med student. And he did right. He did get in. I don't know if the others were going for it. Um, but it's one of those... Uh, one of those moments when, you know, a Jeopardy clue really has somebody's name on it. Right, right. At Daily Double number three, we had um, another good moment for Suffolk. It was in Characters in the Aeneid. Um, he found it at clue number 27 and wagered 1,000. Uh, the clue was, Sinon is a Greek who persuades the Trojans to take this object into their city as an offering to the goddess Minerva. He guessed uh, what is a horse... Did he get a be more specific or just a pause? I think just a pause. Um, I think just a pause. He added a wooden horse and then was ruled correct. And Alex said, yes, the Trojan horse. Although I guess it's it's not the Trojan horse until the thing happens, right? That's like, true. Um, I mean, it was a Greek horse until the Trojans took it. Right. Yeah. So I, I uh, my first response was like, no, it's the Trojan horse, you know, but, you know, right. I think I think he was right to say a wooden horse. Um, sure. Speaking of. Uh, that's oddly cosmic with uh, Learned League. Yes, where I, I learned recently from somebody whose friend submitted it that uh, that Learned League also ruled um, a wooden horse correct nice. uh, on that clue, nice. on that uh, on that question. Yeah. Cool. So he ended up going, Sotvik ended up going into Final Jeopardy with, with a lead, um, not a huge lead, uh, but a lead. 15,400 to Shannon's 13,600 and Kevin's 9,600. The category was business and industry. The clue was peaking at 9,000 locations in 2004. This chain of stores was down to one in 2019, located in Bend, Oregon. Shout out Rachel Lindgren, Bend, Oregon. Yes. I didn't have this one. You didn't? This felt like, no, I know I should have. Oh. I know I should have. It was like, I just, I, I knew there was some trick to, like, that I had to think of something that there would not be a need for anymore, but I couldn't quite get to what that was. Yeah. The, yeah. the last blockbuster. For some reason, I thought the last blockbuster was in Alaska. Not that I seriously considered blockbuster, because I was trying to figure out what the store would sell. Mm. And I think that I got stuck on, like, like music stores like that you know we've switched to so oh, much to yeah. digital download of, of music right um and so i was trying to think of like a chain of like music stores and um and i thought of i'm like well we still have barnes and noble like there's no borders books anymore like what about you know like i was sort of going around with um with that and not thinking about rental video rental yeah. businesses yeah yeah there's so, a there's a my bad there's a documentary about the the last blockbuster I'll need to check it out, but I think it has a pretty funny Twitter account if you want to follow them. Um, could be wrong. Could be could be wrong. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. So Kevin and and Suthvik both get it, uh, and Suthvik cover bet as well he should, mm-hmm. and he ends up winning, and moving on to Wednesday. All right, Wednesday. I loved this whole board. Um, sorry, I should, we should talk about the contestants first, though. Um, (laughs) uh, so we have Dave Blum, uh, biomedical engineer from Boston, Massachusetts, 
We have Elise Nussbaum, a financial counselor from Jersey City, New Jersey, and Sattvik Namburar, a medical student from Lebanon, New Hampshire, uh, returning with uh, one-day cash winnings of 27,201. All right, so I loved the whole board, especially Single Jeopardy, but like the, the whole game, I, I enjoyed a lot. The game and the clues. Yeah, I did too. I loved that we went straight for... Um, uh, Sotfik got to got to choose, you know, as the returning can- champion, the first category. He went straight for the occupation of France. Um, I read him as like very strong in like history, geography, science, um, and I think that I mean I was assuming it would be like a World War Two category. Sure. Yeah. Right. Uh, but it turned out it was was French words for occupations like jobs and so you know you you go in expecting your first clue is going to be like a history thing and you get the single word coiffeur and uh elise rings in with hairdresser and then just runs the category yeah yeah that was that was amazing i she won my heart yeah she she took a took a good lead there and and really just didn't relinquish it the whole game yeah no then uh, stopped in briefly at uh, the Great American Reads Top 100 Books, um, and then they moved over to Disney on Broadway, which I, I am proud to say I got them all without seeing the video clues. Like, I called them all before the video started. Ah. Let me just show off a little bit. I don't know if that's actually... I don't know if that's impressive. It might not I be. I mean, it's whatever. I do know that my, uh, my three-year-old was extremely excited when Elsa started singing and then was mm-hmm. extremely disappointed when Elsa went away yeah and cried um Elsa is the reason that my four-year-old wants to watch Jeopardy all the time because I assume this is like a local market commercial we get commercials for Broadway productions um on Jeopardy yeah shockingly we the, don't yeah we're in the New York metro area so uh we get commercials for for Frozen on Broadway like just about every airing of Jeopardy nice yeah we just get commercials for denture paste and uh (laughs) injury lawyers and life insurance yeah we we get all of those too but the the broadway commercials are the good ones i get yelled at if i fast forward through them through the commercials (laughs) with my kids in the room oh man uh so dave hit the daily double at clue number 12 in the racket sports category at the $800 level. Uh, the clue was the Thomas Cup and the Uber Cup are presented by the BWF, this Racket Sports World Federation. He couldn't think of anything. Um, the correct answer is badminton. I imagine he might have he might have zoomed in on like the wrong part of the clue, uh, which I have a little experience with. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that if you start thinking, what is a racket sport that starts with B, that will get you there. But probably, if you're trying to figure out whether the Thomas Cup and the Uber Cup are something you've heard of, like yeah. they're probably not. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But but see. now I have to f- I have to find out when these will be on so that I can watch the fast-paced, exciting competition yeah. of the Badminton World Federation. 
There was a funny exchange between Elise and Alex the first time she asked for a clue from the you're creeping me out category. She said, you're creeping me out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, Ale- and Alex apologized. <laughs> Which might be the first time he's ever done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, at the end of Jeopardy, um, Elise has a sizable lead, 8,600 to suffix 3,800 and Dave's 2,400. So we go into Double Jeopardy. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed each of these categories. It it was like a a vast range of very different things that I I enjoyed a lot. I mean, they did well with the board overall. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, the combined Coriat for this game is very high uh, for regular season play, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 45,800. There's 56,000 on the board, so they only lost about 10K. Sure. Um, Yeah. It seems I, I have I don't do Jeopardy statistics like uh, like the Jeopardy fan does um, or J Archive, but that that sounds like a pretty high combined choreat to me. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so we had Plunder Woman, uh, which was all about uh, women in like pri- pirates and robbers, and uh, we had first name song titles. What is that person doing? Uh, which, <laughs> which is kind of a fun. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how to describe those Jeopardy categories, but uh, those those ones those ones crack me up. Yeah. Um, Island nation capital cities, which reminded me that I need to go back to studying capitals on a regular basis because those are starting to evaporate from my brain. Mm. I got religion, uh, which you'll be surprised to hear I ran, and. Sure. Um, Yep. Uh, stuck in the middle with U, uh, the letter U exactly in the middle of each correct response. Yeah. 1600 and stuck in the middle with U, doing some speechifying, work on this, the study of study and practice of oral delivery. And the word they're looking for is elocution, which is a word that I always forget exists until somebody else uses mm-hmm. it. And I'm like, oh, that's a good word. I should work that into my yes. lexicon. And then it just goes away again. It is a good word. Yeah, I couldn't think of it either. I was trying to, um, the word that came right to mind was rhetoric, which is not specific enough. Um, and also doesn't fit the category. And doesn't fit the category. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, elocution is a great word. So we get the, uh, we get daily double number two pretty late in the game. It's at clue number 23, mm-hmm. and it's in the I Got Religion category. Uh, the clue is this directional group formalized its split from northerners in augusta georgia in 1845 and suffolk gets the southern baptists which i thought was a pretty good pretty good poll if i had taken a lot of time to think about it i probably would have got there but i was i don't know where my mind was at i was not getting to southern baptists i did get it right away um if i remember correctly the split had to do with um disagreement within the Baptist movement about uh, abolition and slavery mm. and uh, but it persists I think those two groups have taken you know subsequently took pretty different roads yes um, yes <laughs> yeah. yes they have so in plunder woman oh, yeah. at the 1200 level uh, we have this clue the most successful pirate of all time was a woman Ching Shi grew her late husband's fleet into more than a thousand ships, controlling almost all the piracy in this sea. 
the emperor had to offer her amnesty to end it. But along with this, they had a clue on the video monitor, which highlights the sea to the south of China. Which China is labeled <laughs> as China. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so um, what you had to know for that was that the sea that borders China sort of to the south is the South China Sea, um, which reminded me very much of uh, uh, well, not the, the, the Colorado moment from uh, I know. From last week. I had the, the same exact thought. I was like, <laughs> with the maps. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, sometimes it seems it feels like the difficulty on the maps is not matching the uh, difficulty level on the other questions. Um, and that was one of those moments, like, do you know which sea is toward the south of China? Um, Take a wild yeah. guess. You're probably <laughs> right. All right, so Daily Double 3 comes at clue number 29, which turned out to be the final clue of the round. They ran out of time. Um, in the category Island Nation Capital Cities, Dave gets the clue. Uh, it is... Rosso Dominica was burned by the French in 1805 and suffered near total destruction by one of these in 1979. Um, he got stuck for a while and guessed a bomb. Um, the correct response was a hurricane. Um, so he lost 6,000. Yeah, which was the right move at that time. Yeah. It, if he'd gotten it, it would have gotten him back into contention, but it, it dropped him dropped him way down to 2,400 to suffix 16,300. And Elise is 26,600. And just to note that that is, Elise had no daily doubles. That's just 26,600, like straight from the board. Yeah. Um, so they get the category for Final Jeopardy movie and book titles. Um, their clue is this title of a 1962 novel and 1975 film refers to the direction the last of three geese took in an old nursery rhyme. Dave Wager's uh, zero, because uh, why not? And. Uh, guesses what is upstream. Sotvik guesses what is one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which is correct. Uh, one flew east, one flew west, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And Lise also has it correct uh, with 8,000, which is a cover bet and a little bit. Mm-hmm. So she will come back the next day. Yes. One flew over the cuckoo's nest was, we, we've talked on the podcast before about my uh, teenage attempt to watch all the one, AFI's 100 greatest movie, movies. So I, I encountered that mm-hmm. one at that time for the first time. Oh, we, we watched it in high school, like in class. Mm. Uh, we read the book in, in literature and, and watched the, watched the film. It's really good. Nice. I mean, obvi- yeah, obviously, it is. <laughs> like, yes. a, lot of, a lot of people agree <laughs> that it's good, so... Cool. So we move on to Thursday. We have uh, Darren Hall, a director of client engagement from Miami, Florida. Ryan Carmichael, a filmmaker from Astoria, New York. And Elise Nussbaum, our returning champion of financial counselor from Jersey City, New Jersey. I particularly enjoyed the nicknames from Tony Stark category. Um, oh, that was fun. That was really fun. Which you obviously like, kind of have to... You have to be familiar with the Marvel Cinematic Universe now mm-hmm. to be able to approach those. I mean, if you're going to go on Jeopardy, I think there's not... It, it is reasonable to expect people to be familiar with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Sure, sure. Although, there were other routes into several of these. That's um, true. 
At the $1,000 level, uh, they had Tony Calls Loki by the title of this 2009 Broadway musical about 1980s hair bands. Probably you're more likely to know the musical than to remember what Tony Calls Loki. Um, right. Uh, in any case, the correct response is Rock of Ages. Rock. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that is how I rem- how I got it, too. But yeah. uh, And the one before that talks about the 1962 Frank Sinatra thriller, The Manchurian Candidate. I thought the weird legal news category was fun, but also you just had to you had to guess it. Like, there's no chance you've seen any of these news items. You just have to, you know, right. get it from context. Right. Yeah. It's it's not like you. It's it's problem solving more than like recalling information. Yes, but I enjoyed the uh, the clue at the eight hundred dollar level in that category. A burglar in Vancouver, Washington, was arrested after he broke into one of these fun experience places and naturally <laughs> couldn't get out. Um, uh, the correct response being an escape room. I would like to know more about that. Yes. Why? Why? What? Yeah. We got the Daily Double at the $1,000 level in 20th century history. Uh, Elise got it. Uh, wagered 1200 um, Queen Victoria's eldest son took the throne in 1901 with this name and number, uh, and she correctly responded, who is Edward VII? Yeah, and Elise gets it, which, yay. Good job, Elise. Mm-hmm. Yay. Yep. So we wrap up the single Jeopardy round. Um, Ryan is uh, in the red. He has negative 200. Um, Darren has 3,400. Elise has 9,000. Yeah. Um, so pretty commanding lead. Yeah. In, in the Double Jeopardy round, we get another category with, like, clips. The American Music Awards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is, like... <laughs> I Like I said, I noticed a lot of those going on this week. Yes. Yeah, there's been a lot this week. Uh, once again, Hell has frozen over. I got four of them. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I should get credit for doing well in a pop music category with Bruno Mars. Well, no, not knowing... Uh, at the $800 level, the 2015 AMAs saw Taylor Swift take home the trophy for pop rock album, this one named for the year of Taylor's birth. Um, Ryan rang in with, uh, what is 1989? Woo! Yeah. That, oh, is that? That woo was for yeah. 1989, not for Taylor Swift. <laughs> oh, not, that, not that I have I, anything I against Taylor Swift. I don't have anything against Taylor Swift. I have no idea how I knew Post Malone, but I did. Um, so mm. maybe my music studying is working. Maybe you're like you have a dissociative identity that's like way into modern hip hop. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> I don't have time for a dissociative identity. <laughs> um, let's see. Yeah, so a, a lot of clips. So they only ended up getting through 28 of the 30 clues of the round. Mm-hmm hit daily double number two in the pillars of the earth category at clue number 10 uh darren hit the daily double and wagered 3000 um the clue was a rock formation shaped like a pillar of salt near the dead sea is named for this biblical woman and i have some thoughts about this kyle okay because it strikes me as a bit unfair to ask is to to ask someone to name a biblical woman when that woman has no name in the Bible. That's fair. Right? That's fair. Yeah. The correct response is Lot's wife. And, you know, I have some thoughts about the number of women who have no name in the Bible 
overall. Um, but I think from a question writing standpoint, it might have been uh, a little bit more fair to ask for the Lot's name. Yeah, like his name for the wife of this person, this Bible character. Yeah. I don't know what was going on in Darren's head, but um, I mean, I knew that it was Lot's wife, but I, I could see someone thinking that they were supposed to produce a name. Sure. Right. Yeah. Not, not the name of the person's husband. Right. But Lot's wife is uh, the, the story is that she was not supposed to look back. Right. Yeah. At, um, as God destroyed Sodom. Sodom. Yeah. But did and became a pillar of salt, which now that I think about it, that, that fits with like Greek mythology. Right. The story of Orpheus. Right. Yeah. yeah. Orpheus and what's her name? I saw Hades Town. I should know this. Eurydice. Yes, Eurydice. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway, um, so we get daily double number three in uh, the book of lake and pond and river. Uh, that that's the category at the twelve hundred dollar level. The clue is chapter twenty five of the Morte d'Arthur. Uh, is how Arthur by the mean of Merlin gat Excalibur his sword of this woman which is just one of the most fun sentences to say out loud yeah and the correct response is the lady of the lake which Elise got which just helps bump her even farther into the lead she she just crushed this game <laughs> like yes <laughs> yeah she finishes with a huge score but her daily double wagers were actually pretty small right she wagered 1200 on daily double one she wagered 2200 on daily double three yeah um she finishes double jeopardy with 25,200 um to ryan's 6600 and darren's 4400 they get the category american history for final jeopardy the clue is one a civil war hero and one a u.s senator Brothers with this last name were both considered for the 1884 Republican presidential nomination. Yeah, and they, uh, all three of them missed it, which I'm, this was a tough one. This was a tough one. Um, unless you happen to know information surrounding the 1884 Republican nomination. Oh, I, I actually didn't know anything surrounding the 1884 Republican nomination, um, but thought about uh, Civil War heroes and um, who was a senator I would know from that time and remembered that Sherman of like Sherman's March to the Sea was related to Sherman of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I got it via that route. I don't know any, I okay. don't remember anything about the 1884 Republican presidential nomination. So there was a route, uh, yeah. but I, but it was a tough one. I did not get there. When, they, when it revealed Sherman, it, it made it click with me with like, oh yeah. The Sherman Antitrust Act, which was in 1890, I believe. Uh, so that, I mean, it totally made sense. But I tried going through the uh, Civil War hero route, and I was like, was there a McClellan? Was there a Senator McClellan? Was he a, he, w- was he really considered a Civil War hero, though? And I spent time, like, going over that dumb, was George McClellan really a, a hero instead of just, like, going through names? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, hey, you got it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they all missed it. Uh, Darren said, what is Benton? Ryan said, what is McKinley? And uh, Elise guessed, what is Arthur? Uh, and she lost 2000 or 5000 but she had it locked out anyway. So, Yep. So that takes us into Friday. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Joy Dasgupta, an international affairs analyst from Washington, D.C. Uh, Seema Dahlheimer, a professor of technical writing from St. Louis, Missouri. Elise Nussbaum, a financial counselor from Jersey City, New Jersey, whose two-day cash winnings total 54800 which is a good amount for, for two days. Yeah, really good amount for two yeah. days. The writers were getting clever with us in the single Jeopardy round. Yep, they, we have uh, black and white films, then red alert, then in the pink, then yellow with O in quotation marks, then it's all about that green baby. And finally, I got the blues. Yeah. So lots of colors mm-hmm. in there, uh, although most of the clues are not actually about colors. Right, uh, red alert turned, about, turned out to be about communism. In the pink was like, I don't hear people use that idiom, but I guess it means like in like having to do with like good health. So they were all sort mm-hmm. of health related clues. Um, yellow, the O in quotation marks. So it was just words that start with O. Uh, it's all about that green baby had, I think, an underlying billionaires theme, right? Are all these? Yeah. yeah. And I assumed that I got the blues was going to be a music category, but in fact, it was about shades of the color blue. Yeah, it was actually about blues. Yeah like plural of blue Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i thought i thought that was very clever and it was a nice way to there was a lot of variety in the categories but it made it feel very like like cohesive yeah like cohesive like a like a trivia game you know yeah you know like sometimes you go to a pub trivia or whatever and the person who wrote it has a theme Mm -hmm. you know they were all keeping pace with each other reasonably well through a lot of single jeopardy um Mm -hmm. took them quite a while to find the daily double um so they worked through um much of black all of black and white films and then this is just this is not necessarily a trivia thing it's more of an aside about people being ridiculous um in in the pink $400 $400 level. Mm-hmm. It says, careful with raw milk, a.k.a. this 13-letter kind. It can contain harmful bacteria. And the correct response is unpasteurized. Maybe I feel a bit too strongly about this, but the whole, like, raw food mm-hmm. movement is just mm, yeah. absurd. We have figured out how to make food healthier. Yep. Yep. We should stick to that. Yeah. And raw water Wait, oh. It's the worst thing you can oh, do. Oh, no. Oh. Ugh. Yikes. Now, I'm sure that none of our listeners do that because our listeners are intelligent and reasonable people who understand that advancements in science and health are good for us as humans. Yeah. But in case you, you listeners happen to, I don't know, spend this upcoming Thanksgiving holiday with a relative who starts talking about uh, what Gwyneth Paltrow told them to do, with their raw water um feel free to in no uncertain terms tell them how ridiculous they're being and that they're endangering not only themselves but everyone around them and that they are frankly insulting the rest of the world that doesn't have access to clean water yep good rant 100 percent. that's my diatribe yep good Good diatribe (laughs) thanks anyway we find the (laughs) the daily double all right let's go on (laughs) back to jeopardy (laughs) yeah uh pretty late in the in the round like you said uh it's in the category it's all about that green baby Mm -hmm. and it's at the six hundred dollar level um and it's the last name of brothers charles and david worth around a combined 100 billion dollars at the time of david's death in 2019 and uh joy 
wagers four thousand on this, which it's smart, mm-hmm. smart wager, yep. and uh, he correctly identifies Coke, mm-hmm. which. <clears throat> could get on another rant oh. <laughs> but i'm not gonna that one's a little bit more dangerous to go on so i'm not gonna do yeah. that I, i'm with you though i i can i can visualize the rant um sure what's the what's the auditory equivalent of visualize um all right so right before that there was a fun clue in the yellow category at the 600 level the clue was someday you may find me by a well or spring at this small green area in a desert and there was uh, the the response, of course, uh, is oh what is Oasis? Uh, there was a like a hidden clue in there, in that the beginning is the lyrics of Champagne Supernova by the band Oasis, um, which may have just gone right over Alex's head too, right? Like I think that I said it in rhythm because like I I can't not, um, but I I don't I don't know if he caught that. Um, but somebody was doing some very clever writing. So nice job, Jeffrey yeah. writers. I appreciate you. We do. We appreciate you a lot. Very even much. We... Even if we complain sometimes about the maps. About maps. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all do a, like the no, the amount of excellent trivia like questions that the writers turn out on a daily it's basis. It's unbelievable. Is... I did the math and I was like, they're right. They're turning out three hundred and five clues in 13 categories no, sorry 65 categories right yeah it's it's an, it's unreal and they're so <laughs> good so like i have a hard time writing five in a week yeah <laughs> and still i write them i'm not very good at it so all right anyway so anyway um uh we see uh joy's in the lead at uh, at the end of jeopardy with ten thousand. elise is trailing with six thousand. Um, Seema has 3,800, so she's not completely out of the picture at that point, um, but trailing, um, as we go into Double Jeopardy. I don't know if Elise was feeling a lot of pressure Mm -hmm. being behind Joy, uh, for a good amount of that, of the round, or if, I mean, it is a Friday game, it's the end of the day, I don't know if maybe she was feeling a bit tired Mm -hmm. or something, but she seemed, she seemed off. Yeah. Like, she obviously played really, really well and had a lot of, like, had a lot of good responses, got in on the buzzer on plenty of things. But, um, like, in between, I don't know, I just noticed that in, like, hmm. picking categories, she seemed to take a little yeah, longer she was or, a, like, she mispronounce was things or... Yeah. I just noticed yeah. that. Fair enough. Uh, we had seven letter words, which is more countable than 11 letter. Mm-hmm. Windy City Politics, quotable books, U.S. Naval Academy graduates, which I think was intimidating the contestants a little bit. Um, yeah. Geographic AKAs and good television. Uh, and good television, Alex didn't say this, I think, unless I missed it. Um, but there was an underlying theme there um, that all of the television shows had the word good in the title. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Uh, which I did better in that category than I anticipated. Like, whenever a movie or TV category comes up, I'm always like, I will get one of these. Yeah. Uh, but actually, did pretty well. Okay, did pretty nice. Well. Yeah, we're uh, we're big fans of the Good Place in my house. So I had oh, we are too. Such a good show. How is it that a sitcom is teaching America moral philosophy at like a reasonably high level? You know, um, I mean, reasonably yeah. high level given that we're learning it from a sitcom. Sure, but the interesting thing about this, the interesting thing thing about the Good Place, it is a sitcom. But it is a it is a linear narrative mm-hmm. sitcom. Yes, 
which is it, which is very uncommon. Mm-hmm. Like obviously sitcoms have like story arcs and they have like recurring things, but they're 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 usually much more episodic. Yes. Whereas the Good Place is like it is a story mm-hmm. that is also sitcom hilarious. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so we're cool yeah uh you know so uh basically uh kristen bell if you are listening you are welcome to come on the show yeah or really anybody else anyone. on the, i shouldn't just uh, um anyone on the show or all of you you know what oh uh, yeah all of you. yeah come on <laughs> um we got an early daily double number two at question five in quotable books at the twelve hundred dollar level um joey hit it with uh wagered four thousand mm-hmm. dollars the clue was uh 1990 you have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. Um, and all the parents were shouting the answer at the TV, I assume. <laughs> um, yep. But uh, those who are those who are child-free have better things to do than memorize the entire oeuvre of Dr. Seuss. Um, uh, the correct response was, oh, the places you'll go. Mm-hmm. Probably something he received at a gra- as a graduation gift and never actually read. Yep. Uh, yep. Do you have any Dr. Seuss books memorized at this point, Kyle? I think I have How the Grinch Stole Christmas memorized. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually kind of had that memorized from childhood. Uh, I, might, I might have that one. I For a while I had the sleep book, which is a strange one to memorize because there's no real overarching narrative it's just about a bunch of different creatures falling asleep in their respective homes or wherever they live they're falling asleep um and so it you can get it completely out of sequence and there's no plot but i read it to my kids so many times that now i've I've got it it might be a little out of yeah yeah. um anyway uh memorizing dr seuss the thing that i do with my brain power now um <laughs> right oh yeah no i have i have plenty of sandra boynton books memorized. oh no yep yep yeah uh some of them have tunes oh i know i haven't i've decided not to look into those because i want to make them up myself yeah uh we like your personal penguin around here i don't think we've done that one. Oh, it's so good we um, like the belly button book i don't know that one uh it is also good Anyway, uh, Elise gets the last, uh, gets daily double number three almost near the end of the game in U.S. Naval Academy Graduates, which, like you said, it seemed like they were avoiding. Yeah, those were, those were gotten to basically the last, last category of the game. And the clue is Wally Shira, who was the only astronaut to fly in all three of these NASA programs. Uh, and she correctly, I think, I, I suppose guessed based on her facial expression, uh, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, mm-hmm. which, in my mind, those are the only three you could guess. I mean, there mm-hmm. there were other program like there's a space shuttle program, mm-hmm. uh, but those are the names of the you know. Yeah, Alex uh, ribbed her a little bit for adding commentary, but I thought I thought she wasn't. Try- I don't think she was trying to showboat. I thought that she was like trying to. Not exactly stall for time because the time's gonna, uh, you know, the time's gonna take down whether you whether you talk or not. But I think she was maybe trying to sort of uh, ease into it a little bit. Um, yeah. Not trying yeah. to like create suspense or you know whatever. No, um, no, I I definitely I agree. I think she was kind of taken aback at like uh, you you want all three. Yeah. Not just one. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So she goes into Final Jeopardy with the lead again. Um, she has 14,800 to Joey's 12,000 and Seema's 4,600. Um, and I thought Joey was in an interesting wagering position, um, if you'll tolerate me for a second. Did you, did you try and do the wagering math on this? Uh, I did not, no. Okay, so here's the thing. Presumably, Elise is going to make a cover bet, um, which is 9201. And if she misses, she'll drop down to 5600. So he needs to stay above 5600, so cap his, uh, cap his bet at 6399. Um, but then you start thinking about, there's two things you think about. One is, who's in, thir- like, who's in third place? What do they have? What happens if they double up? Um, so if Seema doubles up, she's going to go up to 9,200. So then, so wagering math would say, cap your bet at 27.99. And then the mm-hmm. other thing you, that you think about is what if the person in first place, for whatever reason, wagers zero. So you should, if you can, um, uh, beat their zero wager. Um, so he should wager 28.01. Um, so he's in this position of, if he wagers 28.01 and Elise has wagered zero for whatever reason, then he and he gets it, then he can get it right and win. Mm-hmm. But if Seema is the only person who get it, gets it and she's doubled up, he needs to wager no more than 27.99 right. um, or he'll drop below her. Um, I ended up thinking that if I were him, I would wager 2,800 on the dot, um, which covers potentially both of those scenarios mm-hmm. it covers a full double up double up from Seema. well no it doesn't it for if Seema doubles up and he misses it they end up tied and go to a tiebreaker and similarly if elise wagers zero for whatever reason um and he gets it they go to a tiebreaker um yeah yeah i maybe you just try and read what's going to happen like i don't think elise was going to wager zero in that scenario um sure uh and so yeah so Based on that, yeah, I think he did make their. I think he made the correct choice um, because yeah. going in in second place, you you basically uh, you kind of assume that the person in first place is gonna have to get it wrong, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think he should be betting to ensure that no matter what, Seema can't end up kind of stealing the game if things yeah. go sideways. So. Yeah. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I thought it was fun uh, though to see a situation where like you have to figure out which weird edge cases you're going to cover uh, because you can't cover them all. Yeah, that's a, yeah, um, that's a really good point. Uh, anyway, um, so they get the category home and garden. Um, the clue is in 1847, eccentric horticulturist Sir Charles Isham popularized bees when he imported terracotta ones from Nuremberg. I, the Which, only thing I thought of was flower pots. <laughs> I also thought of flower pots. Bales thought of garden gnomes. My husband Bales is like garden gnomes, and I'm like, those aren't terracotta. Stop it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what? We take this seriously here. Don't you bring that trash. <laughs> so he's gloating today. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, awesome. Yeah. So, <laughs> Seema gets flower pots like Kyle and I did. Um, uh, and Joey and Elise both came up with garden gnomes. I think that you had to zero in on eccentric um, yeah. and think of like, what is an eccentric garden item? And, you know, 
since they're terracotta ones, they're not going to be um, lawn flamingos. <laughs> um. Right. Or like actual flowers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we've talked about the betting and uh, yeah, Joey makes the wager of twenty seven ninety nine, which puts him up to fourteen thousand seven ninety nine, which is a dollar behind Elise before Elise's response is revealed. Yeah. You saw him sort of hesitate and like I think Alex sort of implied that maybe he'd bet too low, but he hadn't, right? He was just he was betting for Sema's all in, not yeah. not to cover Elise's zero. Um At least we assume. Um, so, but I think that maybe he didn't think about covering a zero from first place, which like, you should, it's, un- <laughs> it's unusual for first place to wager zero, you know? Um, yeah. So that's, that's not a top priority, I would say, but you could, you could see Alex was like, oh, you didn't, you know, like, I can't remember what he said exactly, but, uh, Alex sort of had a, had a response to his, him getting almost up to, but not quite up to Elise's number. Um, and you could see his eyes kind of flicker over uh, to where the scores are displayed for the contestants. If you see the contestants look up and to the left, listeners, uh, they are looking at their scores because they can't see the front of their podiums. You see his eyes kind of flicker over there and, and a little sort of self-doubt. Um, but Elise has it um, uh, with a $10,000 bet, so a cover and a little. Um, seems like she likes playing with round numbers if she can. So we'll see her back on Monday. And uh, I've been really enjoying watching her play. Yeah, she's very good and very dynamic. Lots yes. of lots of knowledge. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, who knows? Everybody loses and you could lose at any time. But um, I could see her at least getting to that five-game threshold to, re- to uh, lock in a spot for the next tournament. Yeah. So. So we'll see her again on Monday. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. So that brings us to the end of the week. So, uh, yeah. Emily, what do you think I'm going to be talking about? All right. And once again, I buried the lead here as in I did not give any sort of indication that this was something I was interested in. All right. Let's see. So I had a few guesses, um, and I was very intuitive with these. There were just a few that I was like, hmm, like maybe Kyle would want to do a little like storytelling like research about that um so my first guess um is from monday's game am i in the right game you are in the correct game yes okay uh i wondered if maybe you wanted to head for the biopics category and talk about edith piaf you know edith piaf is is someone that i need to learn uh but that is not who i picked all right Okay, so what are we actually doing? But it is a person. Okay. Uh, in the Monday game, uh, Double Jeopardy round, A Man of the Cloth, we're going to the $800 clue. Before he controlled New York City, this boss served a single term in Congress from 1853 to 1855, and the correct response is, who is Boss oh, Tweed. When that clue came up, it, it made me realize that I know Boss Tweed was a dude from New York... Uh, he was part of Tammany Hall, and that's pretty much all I know. So uh, I decided to look into Boss Tweed, and really what I ended up doing was looking into Tammany Hall and figuring out what Tammany Hall actually, like, was. Ooh, okay. So I'm going to be talking about that. 
All right, that sounds good. I feel like we should pause to shout out Laurie Lander Goodman, who got the Boss Tweed clue back when we were taping. Um, <laughs> and got okay. very animated. <laughs> yes, yeah. Hi, Laurie. Shout out to Laurie. Um, Hi. Yes, uh, she got uh, very animated because I think her family had some idea that, like, Boss Tweed would be a funny, like, grandmother name or something i can't remember like they had some kind of inside <laughs> joke about the name boss tweed and so getting to say it on television was a big highlight of her experience um, that's awesome we'll just have yeah. to remember to ask her about it uh if and really probably meant? when we have her on when, the show yeah yeah okay so what is tammany hall or what was tammany hall i should say uh it no longer exists uh it kind of died out but significantly later than i would have thought given given just the context of boss tweed in the you know mid 19th century new york mm-hmm. but anyway tammany hall or the tammany society also known as the society of saint tammany or the sons of saint tammany or the columbian order uh was founded in new york on may 12th 1789 Uh, originally as a branch of wider network of Tammany societies, which had first begun in Philadelphia in 1772. So it goes, like, back pre-revolution. So the name Tammany comes from Tamanend, or the anglicized version Tammany, who was uh, a, a Native American leader, I believe a chief of the Delaware people. And he was touted for his wisdom and and good decision making um and so the tammany order chose him as their uh their symbol because of that wisdom and they they wanted it to be a club for pure americans quote unquote which of course at the time actually just meant white men but that was their ideal uh the tammany society kind of came into being uh, as, as a bit of a reaction to the uh, Society of the Cincinnati, if you've ever heard of that uh, organization. I have not. Uh, okay, so the Society of the Cincinnati... No, it's... I mean, it it's a thing. I don't know. It's yeah. not particularly prominent. Um, mm-hmm. But the S- Society of the Cincinnati uh, was uh, founded in 1783, uh, kind of at the end of the Revolution, and it was founded by, uh, in a lot of ways, um, essentially the people who became the Federalists, but uh, it was the officers of the Continental Army uh, who kind of wanted a way to sort of maintain their camaraderie and, and oh, okay. keep their, their society going. Uh, the, the problem that a lot of people had with it was that uh, a lot of critics viewed it as a way of establishing essentially a noble class in this new country. Mm, uh, yeah, that makes sense. And, yeah, and a lot of people, like, because it explicitly excluded enlisted soldiers and uh, people, really basically anyone who is not an officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they established it as a hereditary society, so membership in the society passed to the firstborn son of people who were initial founders. Um, so it was a very exclusive thing, and a lot of people took took issue with that. And so as the Federalist Party like kind of developed with the uh, introduction the, of the Constitution, and then you have the, the Anti-Federalists who became the Democratic Republicans, uh, the Tammany Society 
was kind of rose up to to counteract and oppose the Federalists and the Society of the Cincinnati mm-hmm. and sort of the influence that they were they were wielding. So early on in the 1790s <clears throat> and into the 1800s, they already started uh, attempting to wield political influence by uh, by 1798, like I said, this they had become, increasingly political not just a society of people who wanted to be together and you know talk about being pure americans or whatever it became the center of the democratic republican party in new york city uh Mm -hmm. and in particular uh the the prominent person at the time was aaron burr ah yeah so burr was a major tammany player uh and he he kind of used tammany hall during the election of 1800 uh to you know, swing a lot of those north, uh, northern, northern votes uh, toward Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans uh, mm-hmm. and himself. And uh, some historians say that without Tammany, John Adams may have won New York and thus would have won re-election, but hmm. uh, he did not. And that is uh, not how I remember it from my my main source on that topic. The song, "The Election of 1800 from Hamilton. Sure, from Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the only thing I know about that election, really. <laughs> um, you know, who's to say, really? Yeah. And so, uh, so the election went by, but uh, soon after that, uh, there was some conflict that arose in Tammany, like within the the players in Tammany Hall. George Clinton, who was a Revolutionary War uh, hero, uh, he 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 didn't like Aaron Burr. He was possibly jealous of Burr's success and, uh, you know, the positions that he received. Um, so his nephew, DeWitt Clinton, who, if you're from New York, then you may know that name, uh, mm-hmm. kind of took himself, took it upon himself to oppose Burr and even accuse Burr of being a traitor to the Democratic-Republican Party. Uh, DeWitt Clinton was a U.S. senator at the time, uh, but he left the Senate to run for mayor of New York City in... 1803 and was elected uh, and at that time he installed a bunch of his family members and political supporters into positions within the city which led to Tammany kind of losing a lot of its influence and also Burr happened to shoot and kill Alexander Hamilton which made Aaron Burr a rather unpopular dude uh, yep. and so Tammany Hall like they continued to support him for a little while but then they're like you know what we're just we're done with you uh, but at that point, they had lost a lot of the power that they had started to accrue uh, during the election. Um, so in 1805, under the leadership of a guy named Matthew Davis, they tried to turn into more of a political machine, which is what we mm-hmm. see through the rest of the 20th or the, the 19th century. Um, they gained status as a charitable organization, which allowed them to have a lot more uh, financial leeway. Uh, and they established committees within their organization that wielded a lot of influence within the leadership of the Democratic-Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Clintons were still opposed to Tammany Hall. Like, they, the Clintons had set up their own kind of network of people, so basically it was Tammany versus the Clintons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 1806, there was a, a challenger coming along uh, for the governorship of New York, and so uh, DeWitt Clinton met in secret with uh, the the leaders of Tammany Hall to try and like work out a deal to work together to keep this guy from coming in. Uh, and he he agreed to terms with the leaders of Tammany Hall, but uh, 
somehow they caught wind that he had no intention of keeping that word. Uh, mm-hmm. So the rift just ended up getting deeper. So during this time, Clinton like uh, remained in, in positions of power. And by 1810, Tammany Hall had lost a lot of public face uh, and ha- kind of had to reconsider their strategy. Mm-hmm. So this, this conflict between Tammany and the Clintonites continued until Clinton's death in 1828. And... During that time, a lot of the reason that they they kind of couldn't couldn't get back to power was they had they they rejected immigrants from their mm-hmm. uh, organization because remember they were founded on the idea of being pure Americans, right? Right. Whatever that means. Yeah. Which yeah. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? Yeah, it's right. whatever they wanted it to mean. Yeah. Just as it just as today, it's whatever oh, you want it to mean. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Go on a rant. Uh, I know. <laughs> Today's the day for ranting, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I feel a little ranty. But yeah, okay. So they've they've been uh, quote unquote pure Americans. Um, right. Yeah. Up to this point. Um, however, like I said, by 1810, they were like, well, we don't know what to do. Uh, and through the teens, uh, there was the War of 1812. They were in favor of the war. They supported it, which actually uh, brought in some some of the old federalists who were in favor of the war uh and and other other people who were not necessarily within the democratic republican party but they were also supportive of the war they kind of found themselves um migrating toward tammany hall and kind of getting involved in in that machine there yeah uh but then martin van buren became uh the leader of of the Tammany Hall organization and under his leadership uh, toward the end of the 18 teens and toward 1820 Tammany Hall actually pushed for the the state referendum that would expand voting rights to all free white men not just landowners mm-hmm. and when that law passed in 1821 suddenly Tammany's influence increased significantly because uh, now they were the group that had helped all of these uh, particularly Irish immigrants uh, gain the vote Mm-hmm. And from that point on, uh, Irish immigrants became kind of the foundation and primary uh, source of strength for Tammany Hall. So New York was set up in, in uh, it was set up in wards. Each part of the mm-hmm. city was a ward. And so Tammany had a, a, a ward boss for each, each one. And the boss oversaw vote gathering and uh, patronage within their oh. ward. So basically an immigrant moves into the, into that area the ward boss seeks him out and says, hey, I can help you as long as you agree to always vote the way we tell you to vote. And, yeah. you know, when, like, the potato famine in Ireland uh, by 1850 had had resulted in more than 130,000 immigrants uh, from Ireland moving to New York City. So, you know, these newly arrived immigrants were you know deeply impoverished and didn't have any connections didn't have anything waiting for them in in the united states they land and you know representatives from tammany hall bring them in and say you know we can offer you employment shelter we can help you get citizenship uh we can make sure that if you get hurt you know you don't end up on the street as long as you agree to support the people that we put up mm-hmm. in positions of power um, yeah. So in a way, <clears throat> like obviously this is not you know not the most ethical way of running things, but uh, in this pre-New Deal 
situation, uh, this these political machines were kind of a welfare system for these Im- immigrants. Yeah. Um, it's you know not to say that it is necessarily good across the board, but certainly it provided a sense a, a sense of stability and um, a network of support for these newly arrived uh, you know Americans who were who otherwise would have just kind of like landed in port and had to figure it out from there. One exa- example that I, I saw a, a particular uh, higher up in the, in the Tammany organization within the course of one day assisted the victims of a house fire, secured the release of six drunks by speaking on their behalf to the judge, paid the rent of a poor family to prevent their eviction and gave them money for food, secured employment for four individuals, attended the funerals of two of his constituents, one Italian and a, another Jewish, and attended a bar mitzvah, and attended a wedding of a Jewish couple from his ward, like, within one day. Wow. So, like, they That's were very... Day. Yeah. They were very, like, extremely involved in the actual lives of the people mm-hmm. of New York. Uh, it's, you know, it's not just a... They weren't just a political organization that, like, comes around to the house every every week or so or every month and knocks on the door and says you know how can we help you or what can you do for us that kind of thing like they were they were there you knew the people yeah um while you've been talking about this i put together that uh my in my old uh neighborhood the bar that we would go to that was like our neighborhood bar uh was named ward three because we lived in what used to be ward three um anyway ward three of new york city yeah i just there you go just made the connection um but anyway that that is super fascinating yeah and actually i I will briefly mention why there are not wards anymore later and it actually pretty much has to do with tammany hall but uh so yeah like i said they're very very involved um and so with with the this influx of irish immigration and the the political capital that they gained through it um basically by the 1840s uh tammany hall was like utterly in control there were a couple or i shouldn't say a couple there there were some important events with uh with tammany hall in the 1840s there is an important person named fernando wood he was elected to congress and then he tried his hand at some at some different uh businesses uh and then during the 1830s and then eventually uh he became a member of the society and uh he he rose through the ranks and kind of took control but was eventually ousted uh because in in late 1850s uh he got in trouble for a scandal with his brother and there was also the panic of 1857 which kind of made everyone worried about the people in charge uh and so uh, in 1857, he left and formed a third party, the Mozart Hall Democracy, which I did not look into, but I would really like to. Hmm. Um, and that kind of paved the way for Boss Tweed to uh, to take over in Tammany Hall. So Boss Tweed rose to prominence as the foreman of the Big Six Volunteer Fire Company. So at this time, like volunteer fire companies actually were they were very active and i don't just mean in putting out fires i mean in like vying for control of areas <laughs> and huh. like uh apparently um apparently his his violent tactics and competitive nature as a foreman of a fire volunteer fire company caught the attention of the democratic political machine 
Um, and so early on, they nominated him to run for alderman and run for Congress. Uh, and like the clue in Jeopardy said, he um, was elected to Congress in 1852, but didn't do much there. And by 1860, he was the head of Tammany Hall's general committee. Mm -hmm. uh, that same year, he opened a law office, even though he had no training as a lawyer and no education in law. Uh, and he collected thousands of dollars in payments for quote-unquote legal fees, which in reality were extortion payments for illegal services. Ooh, yeah. So there we go. So he was starting off real good. Um, and he really tightened up the control of Tammany over uh, New York City during mm -hmm. his time. Uh, so basically, he, he had his group of people. He had his ring. Uh, and he was able to get members of his ring into pretty much every every uh, like level of government and every part of the government within the city and even at the state level he was able to to wield a lot of influence and power basically throughout the state of new york um and so he had a lot of access to obviously money and work and public works programs mm -hmm. um and you know during this time he also like they still did help immigrants they, they helped the immigrants coming in because they knew that it was a means to an end. It was how they got their, uh, got their votes, but, you know, it still did help. Basically, he, he, he ruled kind of with an iron fist. <laughs> um, uh, everything went, you know, the way he wanted to within the city for, for quite a while, actually, for nearly, basically, uh, nearly all of the 1860s. And... Things kind of went south in 1871. So there was an event in 1871. James Watson, a country or a county auditor uh, in the comptroller's office, uh, who was part of uh, part of uh, Boss Tweed's rings ring, uh, he his head was smashed in by a horse in a sleigh <laughs> accident, uh, and he died. That's not funny. I shouldn't laugh at that. Um, but when he died, his estate. Well, Boss Tweed guarded his estate in the week before Watson's death, um, and another ring member attempted to destroy Watson's records because Watson was keeping the books for the ring. Um, oh. Another, uh, like a, a another auditor came in and provided uh, provided the accounts to um, a former sheriff who was kind of like on the case because throughout this time I haven't mentioned it but throughout this time a lot of the times that the the Tammany Hall's uh, influence would wane is because there were reform movements from politicians and also public pressure to look into illegal activity so basically mm -hmm. anytime that they were like losing their influence is because people were like okay you've gone too far this time uh and you know people get arrested whatever so this is another time that that's happening yeah. um uh, a big thing that happened in 18 another big thing that happened in 1871 uh was the orange riot uh and which was a, a, a riot mainly among uh irish immigrants between protestants and catholics mm -hmm. uh and so that it what the public saw was that tammany was unable to control the irish immigrant population because uh, a lot of people died during <laughs> during that riot um and so uh public opinion kind of turned against them and the these uh like this expose from uh harper's weekly uh that that sort of like highlighted the uh the embezzlement and and the the fraud that boss tweed and his ring was committing um things started to go you know against him yeah and so he uh was arrested and tried in 1872 
he later died in Ludlow Street Jail, although he actually escaped from prison for a little bit. Uh, but he was extradited back and put back in jail. Uh, and he died, he died in jail in 1870, 1876, I think, is what I have. But just because he died doesn't mean Tammany Hall was out. out. Uh, he got arrested, but actually most of his, uh, most of his like, lieutenants and people of, of the Tweed Ring uh, didn't get in trouble at all. They made bank and they lived happily ever after. Because <laughs> apparently crime pays. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm going to skip through some more decades and kind of get toward the end. So we get to 1932. And this whole time, they've still been wielding influence, still been working, still been trying to, like, you know, gain power and maintain maintain power. Uh, but in 1932, a couple of big things happen. Uh, Mayor James Walker, who was a Tammany uh, candidate, was forced from office by scandal. And Franklin Roosevelt was elected president of the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. And even though Franklin was Franklin Roosevelt was also a Democrat... Uh, he was a reform-minded Democrat. He was not part of the machine. Yeah. Um, and so he helped Piero LaGuardia become mayor of New York City. Um, oh. And LaGuardia was a Republican. You know, Roosevelt and, the Repu- and, the, and his Democrats worked together with LaGuardia and the Republicans to make a fusion ticket that got LaGuardia elected. Mm-hmm. And so LaGuardia essentially cleaned house at that point. Uh, he appointed yeah. a lot of nonpartisan officials and really took it upon himself to clean up the, the city government. Um, he had a new charter, and this is where it comes in with the wards, he had a new city charter adopted, <clears throat> which would mandate a proportional representation method of electing members to the city council, whereas uh, before there were a lot of, like, um, it was not representational, mm-hmm. or proportional, I should say. And after that went, after that charter went into effect, the ward system ceased to exist and the new 26 member new york city council was established so those wards went away basically because laguardia was taken down tammany hall Hmm. and they actually they actually stuck around for a while they saw a little bit of a resurgence in the 1950s uh but by the mid 60s uh they had completely disbanded yeah so Huh. That's Tammany Hall. I had no idea they were around for so long. Yeah, neither did I. I had no idea what they like what it even was. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, yeah, and the sort of that they were that they were kind of this uh, like social service kind of safety safety net uh, before they uh, before the the part of history that we that we know you know to whatever extent we know it anyway. This is I, I lived in New York City for ten years, but I did not know much of anything about Tammany Hall to be honest so this has been really interesting thank you yeah yeah Yeah, of course um yeah uh that brings us to the quiz all right and this is a quiz on bosses tweed and tigers which I realize I I did not mention the Tammany tiger but that that was the 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 imagery that was used for Tammany Hall's uh operatives all right Um, bosses tweed and tigers yep that's great uh so here we go question one and these are all just one answer questions question one boss tweed is the most well-known leader of the tammany hall political machine which wielded power for the democratic party there was another political machine of the same time period but for republicans who was the leader of this organization 
He controlled patronage in New York under Ulysses S. Grant and worked closely with Chester A. Arthur. Ooh. I I bet that I'll recognize... I mean, maybe I'll recognize his name when you say it. Um, another political machine. Republican. Connected with Grant and Arthur. Alright, nothing's coming to me. That would be Conkling of the Conkling okay. Machine, uh, which was a name that I had never heard of until I was studying for the tournament. And I saw that for Arthur and Garfield, the name, the, the term the Conkling Machine kept coming up with them. So yeah, he was essentially doing the same thing that Tammany Hall was doing, that, that Boss Tweed was doing, uh, but for the Republicans. Oh. And. Uh, and so Garfield was elected. Uh, he was shot and killed by Charles Guiteau, basically because Guiteau felt that he deserved a patronage position within this machine, and he wasn't given oh, one. Oh, that makes so much more sense now. Like, I'd, always, I'd heard that narrative before, and I was like, that's weird. Why would you feel entitled to that? Um, but within the system of political machines, and like what you've, all, what you've just described, I, I feel like I have a much better context for that yeah um, yeah and conkling vaguely rings a bell but i was never going to produce that name sure i i feel like this was the hardest one and i put it first on purpose um okay but yeah and then garfield died and arthur came to came became president and a lot of people were like well great this guy uh you know he's just in their pocket or whatever and actually uh he kind of took it upon himself with with other people to like uh kind of clean house and, and and dismantle the patronage system. So uh, that kind of surprised people when Arthur came to power. Yeah. Anyway, question two. The production of Tweed includes a step called fulling. This is when the wool used for Tweed is scoured and thickened. Until relatively recently, scouring was done using what liquid? The ammonia in it helps to remove oil from the wool. Ooh, a liquid that contains ammonia. I mean, the thing that's coming to mind was an answer on the quiz that I wrote last time. I wrote a quiz, but that's, I, would you do that? I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of another liquid that contains ammonia. All right, I'm going to go with urine. And urine would be correct. Uh, ah. Yes, I I know it was. I that's why part of why I picked it because I was like, all, all right, right, you're okay, gonna ask about pee. A, I'm gonna ask about pee. Jeopardy podcast where we ask questions about urine. Um, oh, there was a scene with that in Outlander. Um, I'm realizing now we ask questions about pee and we talk about Outlander. That's what we do here. <laughs> also, Which, Jeopardy. <laughs> Let's be clear. Emily talks about Outlander. I am utterly unfamiliar with it. Uh, I'm, I'm only moderately familiar with it. I am not really like properly like in the fandom um, and am not caught up on the show and have read half of one of the books. But, you know, but I'm into it. And sure. there was a scene where they were making tweet. Yeah. Uh, Apparently, um, even back in like Roman times, uh, urine was so important to the process that they actually taxed it huh <laughs> like, wow yeah so there huh. you go 
Um, and okay. actually, I, I saw a quote that's something like, it also provides the characteristic smell that uh, people come to expect from tweed. And this was Ew. a quote. This was a quote from like a hundred years ago or whatever. I don't. I'm pretty sure they don't use urine anymore. Um, but like, that was just weird to me. That's like, you want your clothes to smell like pee? Man. Oh yeah. Man, pre-industrial world was weird. I sometimes am really glad we live now. I know, right? Anyway, sometimes I'm not. Um, cool. So, ten points. All right. Question All right. three. The Tammany Tiger was an image used in political cartoons by what regular contributor to Harper's Weekly magazine? He is also credited with originating the Republican elephant and, erroneously, the Democrat donkey. Oh. He is a cartoonist, I will include. Yeah. Alright, I don't think I'm going to be able to remember his name. I know there was an important cartoonist whose name I've definitely learned at some point but i'm not look we're gonna go with i don't know smith or johnson like when you can't get to a name guess smith or johnson smith we're going or with, johnson we're, we're going with smith okay uh it is thomas nast yes of course it is oh oh okay yes all right yep. yes and, it is. and actually uh he his his cartoons and his also investigative work was uh resulted in the expose that Harper's Weekly did um, on Boss Tweed that kind that helped push public opinion against against him. Hmm. So, yeah. Um and and he is he is credited with like the first to represent the Republican vote as an elephant. However, donkeys had been used in imagery for the Democratic Party all the way back to like Van Buren and uh, Van Buren's time and, and and Jackson and all that. All right, so question yeah. four. The production of Tweed included a step called fulling. But I won't leave you in suspense. This is not the same question as before. After fulling, the woolen cloth is stretched using what tool, and then, or tools if you want to pluralize it. Uh, modern versions are used for fabrics like polyester. All right. Um, Tweed that is used, sorry, a, a tool that is used to stretch after fulling. Um, looms are coming to mind, but I think that's, I don't think that's right. I think that's, I think, I mean, looms, looms weave, and I think that's, that's later in the process. I'm, I feel like combs is a thing in like, in fabric production. Let's go with combs. Okay. I did. I did put a clue in there because I figured without it. Oh it would no! Be a little bit. All right, I missed it. The clue is I won't leave you in suspense. Oh wait. Uh. And an another term for feeling oh. as though. Are you getting anything? I am not getting anything. Okay, so another term for being in suspense. Oh, is, on tenterhooks. Is, is being that... on tenterhooks. Yes. On tenterhooks. Oh, I, that doesn't count. That's okay. Me getting, but. <laughs> But um, I, I feel some gratification that I got to it eventually. Sure. <laughs> so you yeah, talked yeah. me through it. Sure. So, um, yeah, this is where that term comes from. Huh. Tenterhooks used to stretch fabric after it's been treated. Um, yeah. Or the the hooks on it, like the, the frame itself is just called a tenter. And then the things, mm -hmm. you know, the hooks are obviously the oh, tenter okay. hooks that you that you put the, 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 uh, the fabric on. Yeah. Oh, cool. So that's where that comes I from. I had no idea where that came from. Yeah. yeah, so after you pee all over your sheep's hair, 
<laughs> then you stretch it out. All right, question five. All right. I guess they didn't get microplastics in the ocean, but... Yeah, I guess. Now, this one this one may be just, a, just completely over your head, but I'm hoping it's not. I don't, uh, I don't know that we've talked about this. Um, it's about video games. Okay. This 1992 video game from Midway Entertainment has the player fight their way through the 10th Shaolin Tournament, facing various combatants along the way. The final two challenges are the four-armed half-dragon Goro and the final boss, Shang Tsung. What game am I talking about? All right. It is a fighting video game from 1992. Um, And hopefully my guess is in the right, like, genre of video games. I'm going to guess Mortal Kombat. And you are going to be correct. What? I got a video game question. Yeah. Uh, I've I've watched people play some video. Well, no, no, no. uh, Yeah, I I would say my, my video game knowledge is pretty limited and mostly in the realms of, like, you know, like hanging out while my friends play video games from time to time, um, sure. more than playing myself. Although yeah. my kids are putting pressure on me now to learn how to play video games, I may actually do the thing. So. <laughs> well, there, I mean, if you have a Nintendo, if you have a, a Wii or a Switch, there are some really, really good entry level games. What would you What would you recommend as an entry level? Oh we, gosh. We, have a, we we actually I think we have a Wii and a Switch. Yes. Interesting. Yes, um, we do. Uh, well, a lot of the Mario games, actually, for Wii and Switch are really easy, like, mechanically to be able to, like, use the controller and and figure out what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Um, if you want to just be the angriest you've ever been in your entire life, uh, you could play Mario Kart. You could do that. I do play, I play a little bit of Mario Kart, although I'm, like, not, not very good. But I can beat my six-year-old, so, you know. Oh, that's good enough. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Mario Kart um, in college was like it, my my roommates would purposely do it so they could see me get angry. It was like it was fun for them to watch me get frustrated. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, yeah, Mortal Kombat. You're correct. Yay, um, I got it. It was a res- it was a response to the wild popularity of Capcom's Street Fighter 2. Uh and and it has spawned uh gosh I don't even know, 15 games in the franchise since. So, yeah, you got it. Which brings us to the final. You have 20 points. All right. I'm not going to finish with zero again. So I'm wagering 19 of my points. Okay. Okay. So the final, it is focused on the on the term tiger. The Tamil Tigers, or the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, were a militant and political organization that sought to establish an independent Tamil state in what country? Sri Lanka. Okay. (laughs) I I had more to the question, (laughs) but there you go. All right. I'm sorry. Give me more of the question, Kyle. Fine. (laughs) Their movement was part of a brutal civil war that stemmed from tensions between the majority Sinhalese government and and minority Tamil population. Of course, that conflict can be directly attributed to British colonialism. In case you needed a pointer... But yes, it absolutely is Sri Lanka. Uh, yeah, I read a I read a novel set in Sri Lanka for I can't remember a class I was taking in college, um, and so all of those all of those terms pointed right to Sri Lanka for me because I'd done a little bit of um, oh, learning yeah. about that country and that conflict. Um, not yeah. sure I could tell you too much about it off the cuff, but uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, it was when it was like 
really going strong um the un had it as like one of the top 10 humanitarian crises in the world uh it was it was pretty bad <laughs> yeah um yeah but yay you did it congratulations thank you yay thank you great i i love i love your uh bosses tweed and tigers theme. oh and you worked them together really nicely too thank you sorry i jumped in and interrupted you i was so excited to have a to, to have an answer for for the final question um, but <laughs> no. I'm sorry I interrupted you. That was probably poor form. I feel like it's... our audience is so used to listening to me, like sighing heavily and being like, it's probably something I've heard of. Um, that, you know, maybe it's gratifying for you listeners to hear me finally get a question right away. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Let us know in the comments. Yeah. And maybe you all got some of the ones I didn't get, like Conkling or Nast or Tenterhooks. Yeah. Yeah. Hope, hopefully, Thanks. hopefully some of us did, and I'm not just writing way too hard questions. So that brings us to the end of our show for the week. Yeah. Thanks for spending your time with us. Make sure and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review if you would, or a star rating, or both, and tell your Jeopardy fan friends about us. Yeah, and check us out on uh, social media. We're on facebook potent potables and we are on twitter at potent potables one all right we'll be coming back to you next week to talk about jeopardy until then may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker Mm -hmm.